Lord, we are just so grateful that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And as we take some time both in, in, in Treasure Seekers and, and together uh, and looking at your word, Lord, we, may, we, may we see the intentionality, the faithfulness, the steadfastness of your love all, through all time. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning we're beginning a, a new series. There we go. Looking at God's big plan throughout the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to explore throughout this series God's promise to the people of Judah in a time of exile and how it was a part of his big plan to continue his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to fulfill his covenant with Adam and his covenant with Israel to bring redemption to all mankind through the descendants of Abraham and in the line of David. Throughout this series, we'll see that despite their situation, God has a plan, a plan that is bigger and greater than they could ever imagine. A plan that, uh, that, that goes far beyond simply Judah's deliverance from exile and the restoration and rebuilding of a nation. You see, God's plan, the picture that he, he gives us in this example of, of Judah, the people of Judah, is the restoration and the rebuilding of the relationship between God and mankind through Jesus Christ. Before we can jump into Ezra and Nehemiah, we need to look at a little bit of the historical context. What happened to Israel as a nation? Why were there only two tribes left out of the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel? at the time of the Babylonian Empire? And what was God doing in exiling the people like Ezekiel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah all into Babylon? So today is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, but one that once again reveals God's deep desire for us to be reconciled to Him, one that demonstrates His commitment to redemption his faithfulness in his promises, his almighty love and abundant provisions, even in times of great trial, restriction and hardship. Are we ready? I'm excited. I love looking at history. I always enjoy understanding how things happen. So come with me on a journey today through God's story with his people. So following, we're going to go right back to the Exodus uh, and I'll give you a brief summary because I think that that's a really good place to start. We all sort of know where things are at with the Exodus. So at the time, uh, it had been about 400 years since the death of Joseph. We looked at the life of Joseph uh, not that long ago, about three months ago. Uh, and, and so it had been about 400 years there uh, up to the, the time of the Exodus and Israel had, the Hebrew people had grown as a great multitude and, and this caused the Egyptians to become quite afraid of the, the Hebrew people. They thought, well, they could rise up and, and conquer us with no problem. So they enslaved them. They enslaved, the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrew people, God's people. And, and then we had uh, the, the, the coming of Moses, the prince of Egypt. And, and God called him after 40 years. Uh, he, was, he, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, trained under Pharaoh and, and under the Egyptian school in leadership and governance, in, in military uh, tactics and all of that kind of stuff. And, 
Uh, when he was 40 years old, he thought, the time is ripe. I'm ready to lead my people Israel. And he killed a man. He killed one of the slave drivers. And then himself ran and fled into the desert. For, for God, Moses wasn't ready yet. He had all of the passion and the desire, but that had not yet been tempered with wisdom and experience. And so God held him in the wilderness for another 40 years, all the while training him, building up his, his ability to be able to lead Israel. And at the end of the 40 years, we have the, the burning bush where Jesus comes and he sees this bush that's burning, that's not burning, and, and God speaks to him from within the bush and he says, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. And I have heard the cries of my people, Israel. And I've come down to deliver them out of slavery. Now I want you to go. And I want you to be my representative to Pharaoh and lead my people out of Egypt. And, and that's a whole exciting story that we're going to skip over. And, and so we have the, 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 the Israelites then leave Egypt they're consummated as a nation, as a priesthood of, of believers, that, that they would be God's people and that, that He would be their God and, and that they would be the beacons to the whole world of God's glory and righteousness, His justice, His mercy and His love. That was the covenant that was put in place with, with Israel. Now, after wandering in the desert for 40 years... They entered the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. And they took possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham. This is what would become known as the nation of Israel. Each tribe was given their inheritance. And over the next period following Joshua's leadership, they were led by a number of judges. Then Israel asked for a king. First they had King Saul, not the same guy that we read about at the beginning of Acts. And then after Saul was David, we know, we know about David and Goliath. David was this shepherd boy who took down the mightiest of the Philistine warriors. And then after David, there was Solomon, the, perhaps the wisest and wealthiest man to have ever lived. And after Solomon, there was this great division within Israel. Solomon's son Rehoboam said that he would increase the taxes uh, and, and that he would, he would be so much harder, harsher on the people of Israel than his father. All this was part of what God had foretold to the people of Israel when they asked for a king. The ten tribes of the north of Israel didn't like that. And so they didn't want to follow Rehoboam. And so they appointed Jeroboam, one of uh, Solomon's generals, to be their king. And so we have these two kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom, which throughout the Old Testament then from this point on is known as the kingdom of Israel. And we had the southern kingdom, these two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and they're known as the kingdom of Judah. And they kept Rehoboam as their king. And as we read through the books of one and two kings, we see that for a lot of the time, the northern kingdom abandoned their covenant relationship with God. They worshipped idols. They did all sorts of abominable things. We, we looked last year at the book of Amos. Amos was a prophet uh, from the, the south, from, from the kingdom of Judah. 
into the kingdom of Israel. And, and he called them to repentance, yet they did not repent. And, and so this is where the kingdom of Assyria, this secular nation, their capital was Nineveh. We know from the book of Jonah that Nineveh was not a fun place. Uh, that, that Nineveh was, was the worst of the worst of the entire world. And that was the capital of Assyria. And so Assyria came in twice. They invaded the northern kingdom of Israel twice. To, and they were God's tool to punish uh, and pass judgment on the northern kingdom. Part of the way, the modus operandi of Assyria, when, when they conquered a, a new territory... They exiled the inhabitants and scattered them throughout the land and replaced them with their own people. This is partly in, in fulfillment of the covenant blessings and curses that we see in Leviticus 26. In Leviticus 26, three times God says that if Israel depart from their covenant, depart from his ways, that he will discipline them in, in various ways. As we saw when we looked at the book of Amos, the three times that God mentions is not a literal three times. It's not like three strikes and God says, you're out. The three, as in, in Amos, where, where Amos writes, for three transgressions and for four, I will not relent on the people of, uh, and that's the pattern that Amos uses. The three represents a completeness of time. And so we see through this repetition, this pattern of, of three lots of discipline that God offers is, is the completeness of God's discipline on the people of Israel when they have turned away and they will not relent. Then comes the time of judgment. And this is what we see in Leviticus chapter 26, 30 to 33. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities be a waste. And you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquity of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. This is what happened to those ten tribes. They were wiped out of the family of God. There is no heritage remaining of those ten tribes of Israel. Assyria attempted a third invasion of Israel, this time to come down and conquer the kingdom of Judah. This is when Hezekiah, a godly king, was king of Judah and God saved them. After Hezekiah, his son Manasseh and grandson Amon ruled and they had no regard for God or his laws, so much that Israel had completely forgotten them. Then Josiah... So Hezekiah's great-grandson, Josiah, came to the throne and the book of the law was rediscovered and he led through Judah through this process of purification and repentance. Although for the people of Judah, these reforms were not matters of heart and their repentance was not 
genuine. Ralph Alexander captures the ensuring critical events that, uh, world events that happened that led to the Babylonian exile for Judah. This is what he writes. Assyria, the dominant nation in the ancient Near East for more than 250 years, was declining, while the Neo-Babylonian Empire was rising under the leadership of Nabopolassar. In 612 BC, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and Nineveh, the capital city, fell. The remnants of the Assyrian army then fled under Arushabalt, uh, Bullet. They retreated westward to Haran, where with their backs to the Egyptians, they endeavoured to keep the resistance alive. In 609 BC, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt marched to the aid of Assyria with a large force at Megiddo. Josiah, the reformer king of Judah, tried to stop the advance of Necho only to be killed in the ensuing battle. Necho continued on to Haran to support the, the Assyrian army, but the strength of the Babylonians gave them a decisive victory over both Assyria and Egypt. Though Necho failed in his efforts to aid the Assyrians at Haran, he did begin to consolidate Palestine and Syria. He removed Jehoshaphat, the pro-Babylonian son of Jes Josiah, whom the people of Judah crowned as their new king and established Jehoiakim, Josiah's eldest, uh, eldest son, Egyptian son, as his vassal king in Judah. Throughout this international turmoil, Jeremiah the prophet warned the people of Judah to submit to the Babylonians and not to follow the enticements of Egypt, but they would not listen. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the crown prince of Babylon, attacked the combined Assyrian-Egyptian forces on, on the Euphrates in one of the most important battles in history. In Nebuchadnezzar's overwhelming victory, two great powers, powers of the ancient Near East fell, never again to rise to international significance. As the Babylonians pushed their conquest southward, they invaded Judah and deported a group of young nobles from there. This began the great Babylonian captivity of Judah that the world ultimately, that would ultimately affect every Israelite. And it's so important for us to understand this progression of, of events because the kingdoms of Assyria and the kingdoms of Babylon are very, very different. The way their cultures operated are, are completely different and the way God uses them is very, very different. We see for the northern ten tribes, they had gotten to this point in Leviticus chapter 26 where, where God had, had gotten to his point of, of uh, final judgment upon them as a, as a nation. And the Assyrians came in and did what they do. And they wiped the northern tribes off the face of the map. Babylon had a different way of doing things. You see, Babylon, when they went in to a place and conquered a territory, they would take the cream of the crop out. And they allowed them to remain as a community amongst the Babylonian Empire. They remained, that they allowed them to keep their faith and practice their culture. And this is, as we will see, significant. So all of these events take us through what happened to uh, Assyria and Egypt. I mentioned earlier that Ezekiel was one of those taken into exile. 
In Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm not going to read it this morning for the brevity of time, but he talks about the the follies and and the wickedness that had come into Judah in, in very graphic detail. What we see as we read through Ezekiel 16 is that the people of Judah, their hearts had turned so far away from God that they were doing the things that the Canaanites had done before them. That included idol worship and even child sacrifice. And so it was because of this wickedness that God looked down and, and decided that now was the time to judge Judah. But within Judah, there, was, there, there were those who were redeemable, those whose hearts had not turned away from God. And so he used the, people, the, the kingdom of Babylon to come in and to take that remnant, that faithful few, out to spare them the judgment that was coming on, on Judah. And we see that both in Ezekiel 26 and Leviticus 26, that even in the midst of God's judgment, he provides a way for, for his people to turn back. So we, we're going to pick up our story this morning, looking at this moment. The people of Israel, the people of Judah in exile in Babylon, but exiled with a purpose and with a plan, a plan that is about the redemption of, of them as a nation to fulfill the covenant and the promises that God had put in place. We're going to see that God has got a big plan, that it's often more intricate than we can possibly imagine. His great plan works in ways that we can't comprehend or predict, but His plan is perfect and trustworthy, even in the most desperate and seemingly hopeless situations. You might remember going back some time now, it's about five years ago, South Australia experienced a big statewide blackout. Anyone remember that? Was, it was all in the news for, for a long time. It lasted 24 hours. Some places had no pa- power for two days, others as much as four. It's at times like this that we want answers, don't we? Not just any answer, the answer we want to hear. The, and the answer that the South Australian people wanted to hear was that my power is coming on now. Not in six hours, eight hours, 12 hours. Not sometime in the next two days or three days or four days. We we desire an answer in times of conflict like this, times of crisis like this, but we're not open to any answer. We have our our hearts and our minds set on the answer that we want and that's all that we're going to listen for. That's all we're going to pursue. We want the problem fixed and solved and and done. Over the summer of 2017, a year later, South Australia experienced deliberate and intentional rolled blackouts to manage their power load over the grid. Imagine if the best possible answer was that that this is what we need to do for the next three years, four years having rolling blackouts while we rebuild the power infrastructure. That's not the kind of answer that the people would be happy with, is it? You could guarantee that if there was an election, that you would not get re-elected, even if it's the right answer, even if it's the best solution. 
even if it would provide for the long term in ways that no other solution would. That's the kind of answer that we, we don't like to hear because we don't like the pain, we don't like the discomfort, we don't like the inconvenience, so much so that we, we have this tendency to listen to the answers that are more convenient, that are less painful. Sometimes we need to, distru- to, to trust that despite the pain and inconvenience of our situation, God has a plan. His plan won't always be easy. I can guarantee you that. But it will always be the best. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. For the exiles, it would seem that all is lost. Israel is gone and now Judah. They've been taken from their homes with no sense of if or when they could ever return. We read in Psalm 137 of their grief and despair that they could no longer worship God in the house of God before the Ark of the Covenant. We could, they could no longer worship Him in a place where He let His presence be known. In Psalm 137, the people of Judah sing this song. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Their situation was pretty bleak, hopeless, They felt like the most important thing to them had been taken away. Our season that we're, we're living in today, we have many brothers and sisters at this moment feeling lost and isolated because of COVID-19 and all of the various views and opinions around that. They feel this same sentiment. How can we worship God if we cannot meet with Him? They had Israel, the Israelites had lost their place of worship. But notice that they still had that deep desire to worship God. And it's in this, into this situation, into this time that Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 29, reading from verse 3. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shepan and Gamari, Gamari, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice the difference there. They were sent into exile, not punished into exile, not driven into exile. They were sent into exile. That, that implies that God has a plan and a purpose in all of this. And the message to those that have been sent from Jerusalem to Babylon into exile is this. Build houses and live in them. 
plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declare the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah's words of encouragement were controversial. There were false prophets among the people of Judah who had these silver tongues. They were saying that the exile would only last a couple of years. But there was this cultural problem that had been ingrained in Judah that God needed to fix. A problem that was tearing the people away from him. There were influences left in Judah that were undermining the place of God with his people and how they served and worshipped him. So instead of two years, Jeremiah prophesies 70 years in captivity, but with relative freedom. While they had obligations to the Babylonian Empire, they were largely free to worship God, to have a family, to keep their community. They were allowed to have elders and to continue to function as a people, albeit under the supervision of Babylon. We also see here that God is saying that oh, I have taken you out of this depraved land that has become of Judah and placed you under the favor of the Babylonians, the, the most powerful nation in the world. God set them up so that the Babylonians would be their protectors, so that through the, the Babylonians they would be restored, not just in number, but in, in their stature as well. Then we get to verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, Judah, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places that I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You see the difference there in this, this common verse in verse 11 that we, we have, often quoted. It's within the context of, of exile in the context where, where the people of Judah looked around and there, there was this hopelessness that we are done, that we are finished, that there is no way forward for us. God is saying, but you need to know that I have a plan, that I have a way and a purpose in all of this. Judah, the people of Judah might be upset because they've had the place of Jerusalem, that special holy city taken away from them. Something they don't feel that they should have lost, they feel hard done by, they want an answer. Kind of like when as a parent you take away your children's phone or iPhone or, or internet. They don't like it. But you know as a parent that, that what you're doing is the best thing for them. 
helping them to develop their, their personal and relational skills, their communication skills, helping them to develop patience and perseverance, resilience. A promise here in verse 11 is establishing God's plan, His big plan. It's bigger than the circumstances that we can't see beyond. While everything may seem like you're being punished, it's actually for our benefit. God's plan isn't to desert us, to leave us in exile, but to create in us a renewed relationship. God is using the period of exile to refine the faith of the exiles and to exact his judgment on the faithless remnant of Judah. I wonder, during this season of COVID, with talk of restrictions and lockdowns, so often we push back, we, we get aggravated and we yell and we, che- we stomp our feet. We talk about how unhappy we are. I, I wonder if God has been waiting for us to ask a simple question. God, what are you, what, what are you trying to do in me in this time? What, what are the lessons that I need to learn about me? about my faith, about how I relate to you, how I engage with you. Now, I wonder if part of it is perhaps to say to the church, broadly speaking, that we have been locking God out of our lives. Monday to Saturday, maybe even Sunday afternoons, and only giving Him a small portion God is doing something drastic, something uh, significant to get our attention, to say, don't lock me out. I need every minute, every moment of your life. God has got a plan in our season. A plan that goes above and beyond what we could see or imagine. It may not be over in a day or a month or a year. But God is faithful. His glory will once again be seen. God's plan isn't to desert us or to leave us in exile, but to create that renewed relationship, revitalized relationship. In uh, verse 11 and, and in this passage, God isn't talking to individuals. He's not talking about money. His vision is much greater God isn't promising to make, simply make the people of Judah rich in Babylon. He's promising to restore them to the covenant relationship that he had with them before. To return the nation that they once were to, uh, to the plan that he had from the beginning. The plan that we see in Genesis. The promise made to Abraham and David. The plan and promise for the redemption of mankind through Jesus. In Genesis 3, we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first reference we have in the Bible to Jesus. In Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, to Abraham, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and all in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise of Jesus is a coming redemption through the descendants of Abraham. And then to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him in the rod of men and with the stripes of, men, of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I passed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And you might think, how can that possibly be, be talking of Jesus when, when, when God talks of the iniquities of David's descendant? What he's talking about there is that time when Jesus took the iniquities of mankind upon himself. He'll be disciplined with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, when Jesus was beaten and whipped because of us. James chapter 1 verse 2 to 4, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes in, in life we're faced with difficult situations. It's easy to become discouraged and depressed. But like the exiles here, we too can hold on to the hope of the future that God has for us. God's big plan was more than just a say, saying, saving them from the exile. God's plan was to bring back the people that he had promised to bring redemption to all mankind through. To redeem the faithful in Judah, to punish those who had abandoned the covenant fully and completely and who would not turn back so God's promises would continue to be fulfilled. Jeremiah finishes uh, the chapter with, with the judgment on the false prophets. He lets the exiles know that God is not done with his judgment and that those left in Judah, and he will punish these two false prophets by burning them in fire. So in the current climate of world events, what are we to make of everything? What should our, our response be? Simply this, trust in God's plan. Don't simply listen to the silver tongues who tickle our ears with the things that we want to hear, the answers we want to hear. Those who create sensational ideas of dramatic corruption and upheaval, these things we know will come. But what should not be shaken is our confidence in God's plan, that He is in control and that nothing and no one can hinder or block or obscure the victory that we have in Jesus, his mighty, wonderful glory. As, Jem as Jeremiah put it, something that we should do on all occasions in every situation, verse 13 of chapter 29, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is the, the prelude, the context to our series. Next week we're going to start in Ezra 
and then Nehemiah, and, and we're going to be looking at jumping forward 70 years to see the fulfillment of God's promise here to the people of Judah. But his words and his, his encouragement stand firm for us through all our situations, through everything we go through. Seek him with all our heart that we may find him. Ask God, what do you need to do in me in this season? What are the things that you, you're wanting to transform and change in my life that, that I may be a better representative of your glory and your hope? That through my relationships, that, that for those who don't yet know you, they see my faith as a refuge and a sanctuary. Lord, may the, the lost know salvation the way we know salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks this morning that you, you saw fit so long ago to put your plan for redemption in place right at the very beginning of creation. Lord, we thank you that you are unchanging. Your goodness, your faithfulness endure. And in those times where we cannot see the way through, when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose. Father, this morning we come with humble hearts. Lord, we, we ask one simple question. What is it that we need to learn in this season? How do we need to grow and change to be more like you so that your glory, your hope, your love and your mercy may be seen in us and through us. Lord, that in, in our homes, in our lives and in our relationships, those around us, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues, Lord, may, may see the hope that we have in you. Lord, the refuge that we have in you, the security that we have in you, in your love. Amen.